Well, welcome everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the service so far. Uh, good time together. Um, I hope you're doing well. We're starting a new series today and I'd love to have your Bibles open to James chapter 1. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get stuck into God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you that you've given us your word. We pray now that as we hear it, uh, that we'd respond in, uh, in faithfulness and trust to you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. I reckon you can pretty much find, uh, find out how to do anything these days. You just type in how to in your Google search and uh, an array of topics will present themselves. So, for example... Uh, I found how to be funny, which was actually quite funny. You can try it yourself. Um, how to service a car, found that. How to make a how-to video on YouTube. And my personal favourite, how to give a cat a pill. Yes, a difficult task for even the most experienced cat whisperer. So there's step one, put on some medieval armour. Indeed. Step two, protect your weak spots. Your cat will go straight for the kill. Well, now you can explore steps three to 18 in your own time. It's quite a job. We love, we love a how-to video or a how-to book. Our bookstores are full of them. And I think that's why for many Christians, we love the book of James. His letter is a how-to manual of the Christian life. Practical advice from God about how to live the Christian life. James sort of, he shoots from the hip. Uh, there's little sophisticated argument. Instead, he urgently calls on believers to look like real believers, to display their vital signs, to steal a title from a great little book I'm reading on the book of James. James's message is, is fast-paced. Um, it reads a bit like Proverbs. We'll actually see quite a lot of the similarities with Proverbs as we make our way through for this next six weeks. But it's always sprinkled with grace, whether it's his stinging rebuke of our bias towards the rich in chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, or his colourful warning about the use of our, of our tongues in chapter 3. James highlights our common mistakes as Christians and then he draws us to humble confession that, that we need God's help and we need God's mercy. Allowing ourselves to be found out and then submitting ourselves to God's grace, I reckon that's the keys. That's the keys we're going to need uh, to getting the most out of this book. And for those of us who are feeling, I don't know, maybe a little bit lethargic in our faith at the moment or who feel like Christian progress has been pretty slow lately, uh, if you can measure that at all, well, this letter provides real medicine. It is a pill, <laughs> a pill that can at times be hard to swallow, but always good for us. So, who was James? Well, James was someone who knew, knew Jesus very well. He grew up with him. James and Jesus were brothers. But let's see how James describes himself. 
So James chapter 1, verse 1, and I hope you get your Bible in front of you as well. If you don't, just press pause on the video and come, come back to it, grab a Bible, open up James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Not writing as Jesus' brother, he doesn't play that card. No, no, he writes, he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. And he writes to all Christians, uh, he writes to Christians, there's 12 tribes, is code for God's church. James uses the language of God's people in the Old Testament uh, and, and describes the same people in the New Testament, God's people, scattered among the nations. Now, he writes between, somewhere between AD 48 which is where he rose to prominence in the Jerusalem church. Have a read of Acts 15 later, if you like. And his death around AD 62. So somewhere between there, AD 62 is where Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, records James being stoned to death by the Jewish authorities and leadership in Jerusalem. Now, most commentators reckon that James was probably written about the very early 60s AD, just before his death, maybe the late 50s. Okay, so let's get practical. Here we go. Here's the first of our how-to topics in James. How do you get through tough times as a Christian? How do you do it? Whether it's COVID-19, mental health struggles, or any other sickness, or loss of work, or any other trial that tests your faith, how should we respond when our trusting God is tested, when, when the heat is on. We read a moment ago in verse 1 how the people of God, the church whom James was writing to, were scattered. Uh, why? Why were they scattered around the, world, around the Roman world? Well, because churches were being targeted. Christians were being arrested, thrown into prison by Roman and Jewish authorities. Christians were being persecuted for their faith. They were being beaten up, rejected, losing their jobs, going hungry. They were being thrown in front of lions in the arenas for entertainment. And so they scattered to make themselves harder to find. Of course, smaller groups meant less attention from the authorities. You can't help at this point today by making, com making parallels, comparisons with, with Christians in Afghanistan, under the Taliban, the last week or so. Christians fleeing for their lives, leaving their homes and possessions, scattered. Same as in James 1. Same as in those early uh, 50s and 60s AD. You see, it would be far easier for believers to renounce their faith and worship Caesar or submit to Muhammad. You see, their faith is tested in times like this. When our faith is tested, when we face trials of many kinds, it's not easy to keep trusting God. And so the first half of, half of chapter 1, James 1, James gives us four practical principles when we face trials, uh, giving us the how to get through tough times when our faith is tested. Here's the first. Number one, consider such trials pure joy. Look at verse 2, James 1 verse 2. Consider it my, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
That's a word that probably comes as a bit of a surprise. If you've ever faced trials of any kind, and we will, if you haven't already, you will, they are rarely met with joy because they're hard, they're painful. But God isn't asking us to fake it, right? He's not asking us to do that as if Christians could walk around, you know, skipping, smiley, happy, all that sort of stuff, dancing. God's not saying to those Christians who are, eaten, who are being eaten alive by lions uh, or being treated for cancer or who have lost their jobs or are in constant pain. He's not saying, well, just keep smiling, just keep being happy and it'll be okay. No, 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 not that. No, God, God says that when we face trials, there is real joy, pure joy, he says, Pure joy to be found in that experience. How? Eh, We'll find out in a minute. But let's just take a moment. Let's just take a step back just for a second and and think about what's meant by the word trials. Verse 3 defines trials as when our faith is tested. I reckon there are three types of trials, and they'll pop up on the screen now. Three categories, if you like, um, because even verse 2 tells us there are many kinds of trials. Now, the first category of trial is what we might call cause and effect. So many trials in our life are a result of simply because of our own or someone else's disobedience. Cause and effect. We sow what we reap. Uh, If you jump down to verse 15, when our sin drags us away and the result is catastrophic. It's not hard to find examples of of cause and effect trials. Uh, Drunkenness leading to abuse. Sex outside of marriage leading to relationship breakdowns. Uh, Gossip, which always comes back to bite you, uh, leading to poor relationships and and mistrust. Uh, Even car accidents, when when the other driver speeds or is affected by drugs and drifts onto the wrong side of the road, uh, causing great suffering and trials, hardship, testing of our faith. A second type of trials, category of trials, what we might call mystery. I reckon these are the most difficult. This is when there's no rational or logical reason for it, or at least not one we can understand. So Job in the Old Testament, uh, he he faced trials such as these. There was no rational or logical reason. And And these type of trials is where we scream out, why, Lord? Why? And there's a third type of trial, category of trials, and I've just called these, I guess, spiritual trials. This is the type of trial when our faith is tested through simply living a godly life. So the Christians who are dressed here in James, who are scattered, are one example. Persecuted for their faith in Jesus, it tests their faith. Jesus tells us such persecutions, uh, persecution should not come as a surprise. If you live a godly life, you should expect to get some sort of pushback. Now, whether that's ridicule or it's some other form of of social pressure or maybe even death. Whatever the details, James wants to say to these troubled believers that hardships can be counted as pure joy. Now, let's go back to that question then, how? How can hardships, trials, where our faith is tested, be counted as pure joy? Have a look at verse 3. By seeing, that trials, by seeing trials as an opportunity to develop perseverance in the faith. 
Actually, we'll go to verse 2 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the second practical principle as we face trials. Testing produces perseverance, maturity in Christ, makes us stronger. But, and according to verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. The point is we must view our trials from a broader perspective as part of a journey toward being made whole, uh, complete. That is, towards experiencing all of what the Lord intends for us. So when we view trials and the testing of our faith as a means of becoming maturing to be more like Jesus, complete, uh, whole, trials can be seen as a source of joy, pure joy. Because as Christians, becoming more like Jesus, knowing him more and more, trusting him more and more, should be a source of joy, joy, pure joy. But again, that, that means that the real question then is how much do you value the maturity in Christ? How much do you value becoming more and more like Jesus? See, if we desire uh, comfort more than maturity in Christ, growing to be more like Jesus, or, or success more than godliness, we're going to know very little of this joy in hardship. But if above everything else, we want to become more mature complete Christians, growing to be more like Jesus, then despite the sadness and pain of our troubles, we'll be able to find joy in the knowledge that God can and will use our circumstances to make us everything he wants us to be. I want to take a minute or two and I want to read you a story of this of young Sudanese refugee. Uh, the story is in this book, um, on this devotions book of devotions on James called Vital Signs. I mentioned it before. Uh, the story is of a Sudanese refugee. Uh, I, the name is hard to pronounce. Um, Adaihu Akoi. And I've just thrown a few pictures up of just to give you the, the setting of the story. They're not necessarily a, a pictures of this young, young woman. Let me read it to you. Um, I think it's a great encouragement. At only 21 years old, a Sudanese refugee, Adaihu Akoi, has witnessed and experienced more suffering and loss than most Australians will know in a lifetime. To meet her in her new home in Australia is to be struck by a grace and elegance that belies both her age and her story. Far from being a picture of brokenness, Adaihu exudes a quiet strength that suggests hope and optimism. She could easily be excused for being otherwise. Adaihu was only seven years old when civil war broke out in Sudan. Militias armed by the government slaughtered many Christians and drove thousands from their homes. Adaihu's brother and two half-brothers were killed. Her family was scattered during a raid where Adaihu and her siblings were shot as they fled. Adaihu and her two younger brothers escaped on foot to the Kenyan border, finally making it to Kakuma refugee camp where they lived for the next 12 years. For the first eight of those years, she was separated from her parents who were still in Sudan. Life in the camp was extremely hard. 
100,000 people were crammed into the campground. Supplies were scarce and barely adequate. Danger lurked in many forms. Leaving the camp was peril brought, uh, brought the very real danger of being murdered by raiding parties. Within the camp, disease and hunger made life extremely hard and the old and very young were especially vulnerable. Death was an everyday occurrence until his father died. Throughout her tumultuous life, there had been one constant from which Adahu had drawn strength, her faith in Jesus Christ. Raised in a strongly Christian community, Adahu describes her faith as a guiding presence and support and the key aspect of who she is. You have to realise that all things are part of life, she says. God is always with you, whether things are dangerous or risky, whether things are going well or not. Adahu explains that many Sudanese have been brought through much hard, hardship, a fact that she says has actually contributed to them having an even more resolute and strong faith. It's great, isn't it? That's, that's from that little book there, Vital Science. Uh, great encouragement, isn't it? An incredible story. Well, God says more on what we should do when our faith is tested. So, come with me to verse 5 now. When faced with tough times, we should ask God for wisdom and not doubt. Biblical wisdom means understanding how to live in God's world. So our great need in the midst of tough times and trials, says James, is not so much a better understanding of theology or any particular spiritual experience, as good as those things are. Our great need is wisdom, wisdom. Clarity about how to walk God's way in God's world. How to live in God's world. You see, at the heart of wisdom is godliness, walking God's ways, which means growing to be more like Jesus. That maturity word comes, a maturing Christ. And friends, that's what we must value over cleverness. Uh, generosity over financial nous. Justice over intellectual achievement. That's what it means to be wise. So how do you get this wisdom? Well, verse 5 again, what do we do? We ask God. We ask God for it. Who gives generously without finding fault. But, see verse 6, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. In verse 8, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James's point is simply that when you ask for wisdom, don't doubt, you should ask with an attitude of sincere devotion to God, trusting him and his ways, which we read of in his word. We trust that his ways are best. We ask for wisdom. See, if we take an each way bet, eh, you know, partly devoted to God and partly devoted to the world, well, we shouldn't expect to get anything from the Lord. All right, let's look at this final point now. It's final uh, practical advice when facing tough times and trials, hardships. And we'll just touch on this. Rather than fixing our eyes on wealth and the temporary riches of this world, and that's sort of verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1 of James, those things will fade away. We fix our eyes on what is to come. James's message is, again, it is simple. Really, we're faced with a choice Live for life now or live for then. Have a look at verse 12. 
Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James's perspective on trials puts a straight-up challenge to society's emphasis on the importance of living for now. I'm going to live for now. See, quite often in our world uh, today, it's, it's the moment. It's the here and now, you know, which is given priority over the future. I'm living for today. But the result is that any particular hardship we experience now all feels overwhelming and all-conquering. It actually steals the moment from us and so ruins the thing that we value most as Christians. And the result is our resilience in the face of hardship is very low. But if we're able to see the big picture rather than just the here and now, we will begin to see our hardships as being part of a larger, more important process. The trials we experience, says James, can be viewed with a broader perspective as part of the journey toward being made uh, more like Jesus, ready for the future kingdom. If we value the future crown, using James's word there, more than any other particular moment, we will be equipped to press on in the, the difficult and sad realities of life now. Let me try to illustrate a little bit, I think, what James is talking about as we close. If, if you've ever witnessed an, an Ironman uh, triathlon, that's the really, really hard one, right? Um, you would have seen, I think, something what James is on about. Enduring pain to experience the crown. It's not necessarily victory, but simply completion, getting to the end. Now, this is how the race goes, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, excruciating pain at various points along the 3.8-kilometre swim the 180-kilometre pike ride, and then just to finish off, just in case you've got a bit more energy left behind, the 42-kilometre full marathon. The event takes up most of the day and competitors will start at dawn and often finish at night. For these people, the joy and satisfaction of, the finish, of finishing comes from the knowledge they've survived a huge challenge that they've got through. At the halfway point, uh, of the run, they may well be wishing that the pain would go away. I'm sure they would. But they keep going, not for the present, but they keep going because they know what lies ahead. James 1 says something similar. For followers of Jesus, the joy of what is to come can serve as a great motivator, a great guide and light to all that we experience along the way. Keep our eyes fixed on the end, on Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on the crown that awaits might at times be the only thing that keeps us going, that keeps us putting one foot in front of the other. So what's the how-to of when our faith is tested and when we face trials of many kinds? Well, here's what God says. There is joy in persevering because perseverance leads to maturity in Christ, growing in him, becoming more like him. Find wisdom from God. God's word in the Bible is where that's at. And finally, fix your eyes on the crown. Fix your eyes on the finish line. That'll help you put one step after the other. How about I pray 
and uh, we can continue on the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you as we face with trials and um, things that test our faith. Lord, we thank you that, that what we've heard today, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you there is, there, there is joy in persevering and becoming more like Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we can find wisdom from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would ask us to keep our eyes on the crown, the crown of life, the Apostle Paul calls it. And that is the finish line when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.